Yeah. Um, when you start to ask this question and you start to mine it for truth and you get answers to the question, what is money? I think you quickly see that Bitcoin is the singular innovation in the space and that all other crypto asset projects are at best liquid venture capital subjected to little, if any due diligence at worst, they're all scams. So this is where people get very confused. People think that there's 30,000 cryptocurrencies and any one of them could be the winner, right? That there's right. an equal chance. You might as well just flip a coin on all of them and, or yeah. diversify. They, they, import this conventional wisdom from legacy markets that diversification is always the best strategy. If you import that into crypto, you're going to get ruined. wouldn't say I'm a expert by any means. So it's always just fun talking to people like yourself that have been in it for so long. And I've actually never heard of the word freedom maximalist. So I would love to know and pick your brain about how and what that world is like and, and what that is defined as. So maybe we can yeah, start there. Yeah, I you've probably never heard of it because I think I made it up. Um, mm, there's really? a the term Bitcoin maximalist has become um, pretty much the label for, for people that are Bitcoin only, right? And they, they tend to be, tend to cast a lot of derision at all other crypto projects. And so that name came about from, I think it was Vitalik Buterin, who's the, the founder of Ethereum. Yeah. At one point called uh, people that were Bitcoin only Bitcoin maximalists in kind of a, a derogatory way. And the, the community just embraced it. Um, and, you know, so the word maximalist essentially means to increase or optimize for the one thing at the expense of all others. So that in that sense, I think it was intended to be used, as I said, in a derogatory way. But the Bitcoin community, as they tend to do, just sort of embraced it. There was another example of this more recently. I think it was... I forget which publication it was in, but there was a, an article posted that said something to the effect that Bitcoin <laughs> had the tendency to make people more psychopathic or maybe psychopathic people were more likely to adopt Bitcoin. So Bitcoiners started <laughs> calling themselves psychopaths. And it's just kind of like this funny adaptive response, you know, this culturally adaptive response where one group will try to cast aspersions at, at Bitcoiners and Bitcoiners will just absorb whatever it is. And, call themselves that. What is it about so, Bitcoin that would make someone that, that would make them psychopathic? What was the reasoning for that? In the the, it's a nonsense article. I mean, you could look okay. it up yourself. It's total bullshit. Like it, it makes no sense. I, you know, mm. it makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, leaving that aside, I would say, so the Bitcoin community has kind of adopted this label for themselves that they're, they're Bitcoin maximalist, but, um, I don't know. In my mind, I'm trying to look, I consider it this way. I say Bitcoin is a means, freedom is the end, right? So we're pursuing freedom as human beings. As far as I can tell, there is no, you can't have any other aspiration without presupposing your own freedom. Because if you don't have the freedom to pursue your aspiration, then there's no pursuit. 
There's no, there's no way to create yourself, um, to adapt, to change, to learn, to improvise all of these things presuppose freedom. So, you know, I've had my own run-ins with the Bitcoin community in a kind of a cultural way. Um, but I still think that ultimately it's all about optimizing for human freedom. And the, the interesting, interesting thing about freedom is that to say you are a freedom maximalist is to say that you want to maximize freedom at the expense of everything else. Now, people would tend to think, oh, that's really bad because what does that mean? You're going to like hurt other people or, you know, step on other people's toes to enhance your own freedom. But the interesting thing about freedom is that it has this self-limiting principle built into it. Um, if we decompose freedom into its three temporal aspects, you have life, liberty, and property. So if I take your life, I've taken your future freedom from you, right? I've killed you. You don't have a future. If I take your liberty, that means I've confined you somehow or maybe imprisoned you. I've taken your ability to move about in the present. So I've, I've stolen your present freedom. And if I violate your property, if I steal the things that you've justly created or acquired in the world, then I'm actually stealing the fruits of your past freedom. So when you maximize freedom, it is self-limited by the principle of the person and property of others. So what I would say is my intent in using the label freedom maximalist and trying to adopt the lifestyle and embody the actions that, that involves is me seeking to enhance my own freedom up to the limiting principle of other people's freedom. And I think this is the proper way of morality in the world. I think this is the proper way of um, satisfying the most human wants. I think this is the proper way to create the most options for individuals in terms of wealth creation, capital accumulation, innovation. No matter what you want to do in life, no matter what your ambitions or aspirations are, you have to have freedom as a necessary ingredient of that. So... I try to really focus on the end rather than the means. Um, that said, Bitcoin is perhaps the most significant means of human freedom, of pursuing the end of human freedom that we've ever had. Can you, it, can you define um, that a little bit? Because you're talking about lifestyle and then you mentioned um, everybody has their own definition of, of freedom, right? So like, for example, no, they if, don't. No, okay. there's, there's a proper definition of freedom that I just decomposed, life, liberty, and property. These are the three temporal aspects of freedom. So but why is to Bitcoin... define that a bit, what, how does Bitcoin serve as a means to human freedom? Because Bitcoin is inviolable property. Bitcoin is a form of property that if you hold it correctly, specifically in a geographically distributed multi-sig, your property cannot be violated. And if your property cannot be violated, then you are free to store the fruits of your labor in a medium that's insulated from the opinions and actions of others. And if you can do that and you can accumulate wealth in this inviolable nest egg, if you will, then all of a sudden you are maximizing your own freedom by increasing your economic, um, your wherewithal to store economic energy across time. So that's why it's such an important piece. We've never had this piece solved, actually. This is the purpose of government. We, we implement a monopoly on violence such that we can have peace 
in a local area, reliable rule of law, hopefully strong property rights. That's the intention of government is to preserve life, liberty, and property. Obviously, government always historically has overstepped that charge and typically engages in the violation of property through taxation, inflation, and regulation. So Bitcoin is such a significant means toward the end of freedom in that we now have a non-state form of property that is secured by code rather than violence. And this gives an unparalleled amount of power and agency to the individual. I think it's also why it's such a difficult technology to get your head around because it's disruptive to the concept of government itself. It's disruptive to the concept of property. Uh, it's disruptive to the, the nature of the firm. You know, I hate to use the cliche, a paradigm shift, but it is a paradigmatic technological innovation. We, we simply have not ever seen anything like this. And I think that's why Bitcoin maximalists and freedom maximalists are so excited about it. And what's been your journey of discovering more about Bitcoin? Like when did you first hear about Bitcoin and what was that shift for you to start really going all in on talking about it, promoting it, obviously titling your own terminology around freedom maximalist? Yeah. And, and I should say too, that I'm not freedom maximalist is a term that I, again, I think I pretty much adapted it from Bitcoin maximalist because I, you know, Bitcoin's not enough. Bitcoin's very again, the most important tool toward the end of human freedom, but it's not enough, right? Bitcoin's not going to defend you, right? It's not going to defend you from a, an invader in your home. It's not going to feed you. It's not going to uh, move you around. You know, there's other aspects to actually expressing freedom in the world that, that Bitcoin cannot satisfy. Now, in terms of my journey into it, I, I've shared this story on a lot of shows, so I'll try to keep it brief, but I had discovered a book titled The Creature from Jekyll Island, written by G. Edward Griffin back around 2004, 2005. So this is before Bitcoin. The realization I had from that book was that central banking is the black heart of the modern economy. Um, I've gone so far as to call it an institution of slavery. Anytime you have a central institution that can produce money arbitrarily that others are forced to use and others are penalized for producing, right? If you counterfeit a $20 bill, you go to jail. If the Federal Reserve counterfeits $6 trillion, that's just business as usual. So that asymmetry allows those near the fiat currency spigot to produce new currency that is violating the property of everyone else. So they're, they're stealing the time, energy, and effort of productive market actors through legalized counterfeiting, which is central banking. So my realization was that Oh my gosh, this is this is something, by the way, humans, it may sound radical, but if you study human history, you will not find a place where there was not slavery. Slavery has been the alpha and omega of human history. We've all been oppressing one another in one form or another, um, so long as we've been walking upright. And in the modern age, we've just managed to repackage this form of slavery and something that's much less visible, much harder to understand, much less visceral, right? It's not, it doesn't, it's not so evidently violent and coercive. When you print money, people suffer the resultant price inflation. It's not like there was a central banker with a gun to your head or a whip on your back. They're just stealing from you in broad daylight through this, this mechanism of inflation. And so in a way it's, it's better, right? It's more. It's a more civilized form of slavery, if you will. But at the same time, because it's less visible, it can be perpetrated at a much larger scale. 
And this is indeed something I quantified in my piece, Masters and Slaves of Money. And you could check it, check that out for for a deeper dive on it. But essentially, you can do a calculation that backs into the number of human hours being stolen through fiat currency inflation. And you could compare that to things like the transatlantic slave trade, uh, which you could also quantify based on the number of human hours stolen. And you'll see that central banking is a much larger theft of human time than even something like the transatlantic slave trade. And the idea is like people will work, but their money that they earn from the time they spend will become worth less over time because of the printing. Yeah. I mean, we can make it very simple, right? In the same way that a stock certificate or a public equity or private equity for that matter is a title, right? It's an ownership claim on company capital, Hmm. right? If you own a share of Tesla, you own a fraction of the capital that Tesla owns as a company. That's what that's what an equity is. By extension, you could say that money is effectively title on human time because money is a claim on global capital. It can, and now people get very technical on the language. It's not an actual legal claim. Money can be used as a call option on any form of capital or service, anything that the market can produce. Money can claim. That's what, that's what money is. Again, yeah. not in a legal sense, but in a call option sense. If you have a monopoly that can produce money ad infinitum based on its own criteria and everyone else uh, will go to jail or be hurt if they try to engage in money production. That is a license to steal human time. You can print, effectively print your own labor, right? If I'm the Federal Reserve or or I'm BlackRock for that matter and I'm a Federal Reserve insider and I get these you know, I talked to Bruce Fenton yesterday. I think he said the number was $500 billion BlackRock received for COVID relief. That was their bailout package. That's just money. That's just dollars added to the to a database that they own. And what does this do is you, you're basically, if money's a claim on all the capital in the world, you've reallocated those those call options, if you will, to a few. And then as that money enters circulation, all those that did not receive the new money are paying for that increase in, by, by price inflation. So everything becomes more expensive for everyone else, but those, those recipients of the new money first benefit at the expense of everyone else. This is called the Cantillon effect. In that way, the production of money under a legal monopoly in a central bank is the theft of human time. And that's why I argue it is an institution of slavery. So all of that realization came to me through the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. However, at the time, Bitcoin did not exist. So the realization was quite painful in a way because it's like, oh, wow, you see this thing. It's really bad. This, and it gets worse too because the proceeds that are stolen through inflation tend, if you study the history of central banking, you'll quickly see that the history of central banking and the history of warfare are almost one and the same. That those countries tend to go off of a gold standard or start to engage, start to um, prohibit convertibility of dollars into gold, things like this, so they can increase currency supplies to pay for war. So fiat currency has increased the scale, scope, and duration and severity of warfare, as is so clearly evidenced by World War One and World War Two in the 20th century. So we've had this very very pernicious problem, right? This this 
institution of systemic theft that's used to wage global warfare. Um, so it's really, really bad, right? There's no good thing about this. It's theft yeah. used to fund violence. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I heard about Bitcoin, I think in 2014. When was it created? Like when was it supposedly like the white paper came out? 2009. 2009, okay. Five yeah. years later. So, but I did not, it did not immediately register with me. And I don't, I don't know why I kick myself to this day. I just didn't look closely at it. I'm convinced, silly enough as it sounds, that the name Bitcoin actually gave me this. Uh, I just thought it was a joke. It sounded like a joke. Yeah. Bitcoin, you know, bit, so we associate with something small, minute, not very impactful. Coin is like the smallest denomination of money. Bitcoin just, it sounds like a, a weird magic internet money kind of thing. And that's like many people that first encounter Bitcoin, I wrote it off basically. And it wasn't until... 2016, 2017, I started to look more closely at the space as a whole that I, that I began to realize, oh my goodness, this is the answer. This is the thing. This is the non-state money that can actually disrupt gold and disrupt central banking. And so that's when um, I started to invest heavily in the space. I um, started a hedge fund as well. We were like a multi-strategy, multi-crypto asset hedge fund. But as I learned more uh, about the technology, I became much more narrowly focused on Bitcoin itself, uh, specifically after reading the Bitcoin Standard in 2018. Hmm. I think Safety and released that book in April 2018, and I read it like the the weekend it was released. I was very fortunate. Plugged the last gap in my thinking that I didn't have Austrian economics in my mental model. But once I had that plugged in with the rest of the central banking perspectives that I had developed and I also have a, a degree in accounting and finance, so I understood kind of the mechanics of how money and economics work, that uh, it all crystallized for me. And I realized that this was the innovation. This is the the breakthrough. Um, and so I started writing about my findings and my, my investor updates to my LPs and the fund. A lot of that writing became popular and started to circulate widely. I started to write longer form essays about monetary history, monetary evolution, central banking, all of that. Those writings became popular. I was invited onto podcasts and different media outlets to discuss my writing. That became popular. And um, I just started to, I just kept listening to the feedback from the market. People wanted yeah. to hear me talk more about it, write more about it. And so that's what I've been doing. And I got out of the fund business in 2020 and decided to pivot all of my attention into education. And that's when I started the What Is Money show. That's when I started my uh, the Freedom Analyx Substack. And that's what I do now. I have an amazing job. I get to talk to the smartest people in the world about the biggest ideas. Hmm. I get to satisfy my own curiosity in the process. And I, I get to create a lot of value in the lives of others. So I'm very grateful for what I do. That's awesome, man. I mean, I think we need more people like yourself educating on something that is very complex. And I'm sure that's maybe part of the reason why I, I think people are not as to go through the entire white paper and to really understand what the meaning and, and like what the potential of it beyond the investment return. Because I think most people get interested in crypto. That's the first entry in is to see how many, how much money people are making and the potential of, the, of their returns from an investment perspective, but it seems like that's not really what you're going about. 
Uh, it's more about the actual potentials that it could be. So what is it about Bitcoin that you saw that you wanted to go all in on beyond, uh, you know, compared to some of the other cryptocurrencies like Ethereum or Cardano and some of the other ones that exist? Yeah, first and foremost, I would say that there's no question that it is price action that draws people into this space. Uh, and this is not unexpected, actually, if you understand what a price is. A price is the exchange ratio between any two commodities denominated in money. So when you're planning your life, planning your economic affairs, building a business, doing anything that engages with the marketplace, which is damn near everything you do, price is the primary instrument of attention, right? If a price moves up or down, especially really fast, it tends to grab people's attention because that's what it's designed to do. It's a perceptual apparatus, right? If you're, if you're looking out into the future and you're trying to decide what to buy, what to sell, what to do, you're thinking in terms of pricing, right? You're thinking through money rather than about money. Right. So that's a very, very important thing to understand is that we are participating in the marketplace and perceiving economic flows through this technology called money. Very much as if you looked at the world through glasses, right? You're not looking at your glasses, you're looking through them to enhance your perceptual field. Same is true of money. So price tends to draw in people's attention into Bitcoin or into crypto. Um, but if you look a little bit more deeply, you know, if you take off the glasses, if you will, and examine them, rather, like look at the glasses rather than through the glasses, that's when you get into this more philosophical inquiry, like what is money, right? What is money? What is the nature of money? How did we get money? How did it evolve? Uh, that is the namesake of the show. That's the key question that I think you have to answer for yourself to unravel the mysteries of Bitcoin. And, what is that for you, by the um, way? What's that? What is your relationship with money for yourself? What is my relationship with money? Yeah, like how do you view money and, you know, the, cur the currency, knowing all you know about what the potential of Bitcoin could be? I think money is the most important technology in human history. Full stop. There's no more important technology than money. And that's very clearly evident if you consider people's psychological engagement with money, how, again, if without money, you cannot perceive human action at scale. Just look at any economy that suffered hyperinflation. What happens? People become distrustful. People, you can't engage with the marketplace. You can't buy and sell. You can't plan. You can't do anything. Uh, in Venezuela, currency inflated so quickly that cash was clogging the gutters and people were eating dogs and cats. If you remove the technology of money, it reduces you to pure barbarity. So it is an instrument of not only moral integrity, but civilizational integrity. And without money, you just, you can't have a civilization. They are, they're one and the same. Mm -hmm. So when you start to answer, and the question has many, many, many answers. I have not even answered it for myself yet. Yeah. Um, when you start to ask this question and you start to mine it for truth and you get answers to the question, what is money? I think you quickly see that Bitcoin is the singular innovation in the space and that all other crypto asset projects are at best 
Liquid venture capital, subjected to little, if any, due diligence. At worst, they're all scams. So this is where people get very confused. People think that there's 30,000 cryptocurrencies and any one of them could be the winner, right? That there's right. an equal chance. You might as well just flip a coin on all of them and, or yeah. diversify. They, they import this conventional wisdom from legacy markets that diversification is always the best strategy. If you import that into crypto, you're going to get ruined. Um, and this is not only empirically true, if you look at, the price of these alternative crypto assets or what many Bitcoin maximalists endearingly call shit coins. If you look at the price of those assets in Bitcoin terms over four year cycles, basically all of them collapse in Bitcoin terms. So they all underperform Bitcoin. And then also if you logically deduce what money is, you'll see that they can never be money. No other asset, no other crypto asset can ever be money because all of them are controlled by someone or some group or some institution to some extent. And the key value proposition of Bitcoin is that it is controlled by no one. And this path, this idiosyncratic path that Bitcoin moved across to decentralization is not something you create in an engineering lab. It's something that it was a path dependent emergence in socioeconomic reality and it happened once and it's done, right? And then to consider further that um, money itself, it's a social technology. So it's valued based on its market depth, its liquidity and its network effects. So the bigger the network, the more valuable the money. And to try and say that in a more simple way, for the same economic reasons, we only have one gold, right? One dominant analog money. We are, likely only going to have one digital gold, which is one digital equivalent of this uh, single monetary network. And that is a race that Bitcoin has already won. Everything else in the space is doing a copy and paste of Bitcoin's code and either trying to compete with it directly as money or they're trying to apply the code to alternative use cases. So in either case, you know, I don't think you can compete with Bitcoin directly as money for reasons I'll get into in a moment. Mm -hmm. And all other use cases would, by definition, be inferior to the market for money. The market for money is the biggest market in the world. It's the most important market in the world. It's the most important technology in the world, as we've already said. So by definition, anything else that any other use case crypto assets are trying to address, it's going to be inferior to what Bitcoin is doing now. Asking that question, what is money, is very important. And I think one of the most useful paths is getting into why gold became money. Because what this does is it takes you beneath the individual technology itself into the actual properties that market actors seek in money. What are the attributes of a good money? What are the traits? of a useful monetary technology. And I've, I've laid these out in a lot of my media appearances as well, so I won't dwell on it, but just to mention them. Uh, and people combine these, these properties in different amounts and different numbers, but I try to narrow it down to just five. And uh, this is a group of properties that I have uh, lifted from 
the late great Austrian economist Gary North. He has a great book called Honest Money. It's a free PDF online. Uh, I highly encourage people to check it out. It's on the biblical principles of banking and money, but um, very much captures kind of the ancient wisdom of what money is intended to be, what what people seek in good money. Mm. And um, maybe a good analogy here is, you know, if you want a useful telecommunication device, you don't so much care about what the, the device is itself, but what you want is something that can send messages a long distance with high fidelity at a low cost, hopefully privately. Um, and you know, maybe has a large network, right? You have a, a large number of potential individuals you can communicate with. So in that respect, an iPhone beats smoke signals, right? Or a telephone beats a carrier pigeon, right? These technologies sort of evolve over time based on how well they satisfy these properties that market actors seek in them. So similarly in money, we could say money is kind of like an economic telecommunications device and individuals seek the asset or technology that is the most divisible, the most durable, the most recognizable, the most portable, and the most scarce. Um, so when you look at something like gold, let's say monetary metals more generally, monetary metals historically were the most divisible, the most durable, the most recognizable, and the most portable monetary technology we had available to us, full stop. Mm. Of the monetary metals, gold was the most scarce, which means it has the, the least flexible supply. No matter how much time, effort, energy we pour into gold production, its supply increased the most slowly and the most predictably. So this means if I'm an economic actor seeking to store wealth in a medium that no one can arbitrarily inflate, I will choose gold every single time because there's no option to inflate the supply. It cannot be counterfeited. It cannot be arbitrarily inflated. Um, so for those reasons, basically market actors competing with one another across time through this game theoretic process zeroed in on gold as money. And we all know, like we know this, right? We all know gold is money. We know gold is valuable. It's built into our lexicon. We say that business is a gold mine or they have a heart of gold. Like it's, it's meant installed in our language is like the standard of value because it is the standard of value in the yeah. world. Yeah. But what's the problem with gold? as a monetary technology is that it lacks portability, very heavy and difficult to move gold across space. And especially at high frequency, right? You can't move gold around the world at high frequency without incurring significant costs, significant security costs, transportation, logistics, taking a lot of risk. And that just does not work, especially for a globalizing society uh, that's being built on high frequency transactions. So we basically augmented gold by putting all of its, we would centralize the supply in a warehouse, which we later called banks. And that warehouse would issue paper on top of the gold called warehouse receipts. And then market actors could trade this paper or electronic representations of the paper that were as good as gold because they were redeemable for gold. And we had solved the portability problem of gold. 
And so that indeed is what we did for a long time. We had gold-backed currencies and that worked. The problem, of course, is that you now shifted the trust function, right? Where we didn't need to trust anyone if I hold physical gold because no one can do anything about it. But if I custody the gold with a warehouse, I now have to trust the custodian, right? Mm. I have to trust that they won't over-issue the paper claims to gold, right? Right. They, they'll maintain the one-to-one -one peg, if you will. And of course, that became the ultimate honeypot for governments. Governments could always intervene to the banking industry. They could force banks to, to write them cheap loans, you know, to over-issue the paper. It can basically coerce the banking industry to issue government loans or, or issue it new money. And eventually government just monopolized the industry outright. And that's what central banking is. So in that way, we have basically destroyed the integrity of the gold standard um, somewhat unwittingly. And, and maybe there's just maybe a, to try and put this whole thing in a, a bit of a slogan. Another definition of money would be a technology that's useful for expressing value across time and space. That's what it does, right? It stores economic value and we move it across time and space. And then we transform it back into other forms of capital. Or then we transform capital back into money and we move it around and it's an intermediary, right? It's the ultimate medium of exchange. Gold was excellent at expressing value across time because it had a very inflexible supply and could not be counterfeited, could not be inflated. But as we said, very limited in its capacity to move economic value across space because it's physical, it's heavy, it's cumbersome, risky. Gold-backed currency, right? We store it in one place and issue paper on top of it. We've now solved for the, the portability of gold. We can move it across space very easily. And so long as the peg is maintained, then we have a, a monetary technology that can also express value across time very efficiently. But if the peg is violated by human corruptibility, human sinfulness, human self-seeking <laughs> actions, then the money becomes very poor at holding value across time. And that's what fiat currency is, right? It's produced arbitrarily. You don't know how many dollars are in circulation. You don't know how many dollars will be in circulation. You don't know who decides. You don't know who profits. You don't know by what criteria they're deciding. It's very opaque. So what happens? Money doesn't hold its value across time. And that's the problem we have in the world today. There's nowhere, there's no money to hold value across time before Bitcoin. No practically useful money, right? You can bury gold in your backyard, but it's not very practical for yeah. transacting. So enter Bitcoin. Bitcoin is perfectly divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, and perfectly scarce in that it has a it's the first asset in human history with a fixed supply. We've never had this before. So it has a fixed supply of 21 million, which means Bitcoin is optimized for expressing value across both time and space. So we have invented the platonic form of money, if you will. And there's simply no design space left. Satoshi has left no design space for any improvement on it. So... That's what we have. This is the innovation. It's Bitcoin. It's the most superior monetary technology human beings have ever created. Such 
you know, so superior, in fact, that everyone in the world is trying to copy and paste its code to do their own thing or create their own shit coin or get people to give them money, which is not, you know, it's, this is a new phenomenon. But again, if you study the history of money, people have been shit coining since the beginning of time. People have been mm. selling scams and, you know, pretend companies and fake farms and paper claims on this and that. People are always trying to sell you some bullshit but people are always trying to hold the gold. Yeah. And so finally we have digital gold. We have incorruptible money and um, it's an absolute game changer from an economic, a moral and a social sense. Just to go back into the history when the gold standard was removed. Um, I think it was like, was it 1971? Yes. Somewhere around then. Um, what was... What was like the leading indicators of like what happened before that led to that point? The Bretton Woods Conference. So World War One, World War Two. After World War Two, the United States emerged victorious, quote unquote victorious, right? We entered the, the theater of war late. We finished the job and declared ourselves victorious during World War Two. A lot of gold was leaving Europe for North America as a means of of being a geographic safe haven. Because when Germany, and this really speaks to the, the relationship between war and money, every time Germany would invade a country, when they would successfully defeat the country, the first place they would go was to the central bank to raid the gold, to take the gold, right? War is the most expensive and destructive activity humans can engage in. You simply cannot persist in warfare without raising a lot of money. And that's either borrowing, taxing, or stealing. Those are the only options. And taxing is stealing, so they're the same thing. Enough European countries had seen what Germany was doing. You know, I think it was Poland was the last one that was invaded and had their gold hoard, gold stash raided. So gold starts to leave England, leave France, leave these other countries headed for North America just to protect it in case Germany invaded their country. And so eventually most of the gold in the world ended up in North America. So we were the biggest gang in the world. We had the most money in the world. We stepped in and finished the war. We held the Bretton Woods Conference and declared ourselves the global dollar hegemony. Uh, by rewriting the global banking rules and saying the U.S. dollar would be pegged to gold. Every other currency in the world would be pegged to the U.S. dollar. And this gave us the exorbitant privilege, as the French call, called it, to be able to produce as many dollars as we want, export them to other countries, have them send us real goods and services. So we had this infinite call option on goods and services of others. Other countries would accumulate dollars and then countries under the Bretton Woods, original Bretton Woods agreement, could redeem those dollars for gold, even mm. though private gold ownership was still outlawed at the time in the US. The system works for about 27 years. Uh, a couple of countries saw what the US was doing. They were producing too many dollars, obviously, as the incentives were tilted in their favor to do. And so they started to call the bluff of the US and say, hey, you know what? These dollars are 
okay, but I'd rather have the gold. So here's your dollars, send me the gold. I think England and France redeemed, maybe some other countries, but it was around 1970 that Germany tried to redeem some dollars for gold. And at this time, I think the numbers were, the United States had overissued dollars uh, six to one. So we had $6 wow. outstanding for every one unit of gold when it was supposed to be one to one, right? Yeah. So we're 500% overissued. And when, when Germany tried to repatriate some gold, redeem some dollars for gold, that's when we had the, the infamous Nixon shock and Nixon stepped in, hmm. blamed a lot of other things that were going on in the world, right? Blaming, you know, trade imbalances and, you know, greedy capitalists like governments always do, always blaming the capitalists, never themselves, and said that we were going to close the gold window temporarily. This is going to be a temporary measure to rebalance these international trade flows. And here we sit 51 years later in this temporary measure. And um, we've had a global coordinated fiat experiment, and it has completely destroyed the world in a lot of ways. You know? And on this topic, I would direct people towards the website, WTFHappenedIn1971.com. This is not just financial destabilization. This is, uh, it's socioeconomic, right? Suicides are up, drug abuse is up, broken families, um, a collapse in traditional values, a collapse in church attendance. Uh, all the things that we associated with Civilization historically have been in precipitous decline since we went off the gold standard. What makes you think that was the precipitous point, though, and not other things that we've obviously... Just look at the data. Go to the website and look at the data. Okay. And this is not... That, that's the empirical side. If you want the logically to do side, I would say study the literature of, of libertarian philosophers. Mm. They've been saying for hundreds of years that the monetary standard and the moral standard are inexorably linked. Yeah. A lot of this has to do with time preference, which you could read about in Safedine's book. But essentially, if you don't have adequate means to save and plan for the future, then you start to discount the future more, which is to say you become more short-term in your thinking and your behavior, which is equivalent to saying you become more immoral. You don't care as much about the future. You don't care about as much about yourself in the future, nor do you care about others in the future. So you become you slide along that scale. If civilization or a civilized human is someone who engages in long-term thinking, an uncivilized human is someone who engages in short-term thinking, right? If I'm a caveman, I only care about my next meal and the next cave I'm going to sleep in. I could give two shits about planning for the future or building a civilization or delaying gratification. Like none of that makes sense if you're a caveman. Right. And that yeah. is the extreme end of short term thinking. The extreme end of long term thinking is a civilized individual engaged in the marketplace where there's trustful cooperation and contract law and rule of law and all of these things that allow us to interoperate. Mm. So when you debase money, you're violating property, you're violating freedom, and you cause people, you incentivize people to slide regressively along that scale away from being a civilized human and towards being a barbarian. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just on the site right now. Super fascinating. Um, the first chart where it's talking about productivity and compensation, is that like inflation adjusted already? Um, I believe it's real wages and yeah, from 1971 productivity continued to increase, right? We had technological productivity. Mm -hmm. To explain what this is, 
capital amplifies the productivity of labor, right? So you can dig a lot more holes per hour with a shovel than you can with your bare hands. So the more capital we accumulate, the more roundabout our production structures become, the more productive we are. Mm. That productivity should translate into higher wages and purchasing power for individuals on a hard money standard. But in a world where central banks can print money, they're effectively harvesting the economic surplus created by the accumulation of capital and stealing it from wage earners. So that's why you see in 1971, that divergence where real wages had tracked productivity all the way up until 1971. And there's a sudden divergence. Productivity keeps going up. The economy keeps getting more productive, but it's all that wealth is accumulating in the top 1% and 0.1% because they are close to the fiat currency spigot. Whereas all the other people, productive market actors bear the cost, right? Cost of living was rising faster than wages. And that's why we've gone from one individual being able to support a household. And now we have two individuals unable to support a household and it's only getting worse. What so this thoughts? is all because we have an institution of systemic theft implemented in the heart of every modern economy. This is why everyone's life is getting worse. This is why the culture is coming unraveled. This is why people cannot keep up with the treadmill of inflation because it's, it's an, an impossible game. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the automation acceleration that's happened also in the last probably like 30 years or so. And that's continuing to happen where even the productivity is being increased through software, media, automation, like robots, people are needed less, which is why they're being compensated less or people are out of jobs. They're just not as needed when a robot can increase productivity by five times, but is going to replace the jobs and the compensation of five to 10 people in restaurants and factories and all these stuff. Do you think that's also a factor in addition to, yeah, the, the gold peg? No. So that is automation increases productivity. So that is a factor in increasing productivity. But the reason that productivity is not translated into purchasing power or wage increases for productive market actors is because of fiat currency, because all of that productivity is being harvested right? Those nearest the currency spigot benefit from that productivity. Everyone else does not. Hmm. So everyone else suffers increasing cost of living relative to their wages. So they're being taxed harder and harder. Whereas those at the top benefit more and more. This is what's driving the divergence between rich and poor, right? It's widening the wealth gap. Automation is a great thing. Automation would not succeed in the marketplace if it were not desirable by people. Would you rather have Amazon and have things delivered to your home at the, uh, the a keystroke? Or would you rather have to drive to stores individually to buy everything that you want? Which one's right. faster? Which one's cheaper? Which one's yeah, easier? Amazon. So there's a reason automation succeeds. And that when people, typically bureaucrats, try to co-opt this narrative, and say, oh, it's the automation putting people out of jobs. This is a tale that's as old as the Industrial Revolution itself. People used to, people literally protested machinery and factories and burned them to the ground when they would come to their town because they would lose a job. Hmm. But you lose 
a less economically efficient job in place of something that's more economically efficient. And so long as the money is hard, then it benefits everyone. But when the money is soft, central banks confiscate, they harvest, they steal the fruits of that productivity and they pass it to just very few hands and externalize all the costs of that printing on everyone else. Yeah. So automation is a great thing. We want to automate as many things as possible. The more things we automate, the more civilized we become. How, how do you feel about the government now stepping in to tax cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, even though Bitcoin has been designed to solve a lot of these issues? How do you think the end result is going to play out when now the government is stepping in? Um, well, to be clear, first of all, all taxation is theft. Full stop. There's no such thing as tax that is not theft. So I'm totally against all taxation. Hmm. It is, it's contrary Zero. to freedom. Interesting. Zero. Yeah. Zero. And if you don't, it sounds radical. Welcome to the world. Once again, hmm. No, We've had it. slavery since the dawn of humanity. You yeah, think yeah. taxation is not slavery, then you haven't read enough. Mm. Uh, I would suggest reading Rothbard's Ethics of Liberty, or you could read a simpler book by his Anatomy oh, of the State. Wow. Okay. It's a free PDF online. It spells it out very clearly. All taxation is theft. Not only is it immoral, but it's also counterproductive to capital accumulation and wealth creation. It's when did taxation first become introduced in our society? Taxation has been around since the beginning of human history. Okay. It's theft. How long have people been stealing from one another? Right, right. But you in know, a that's more... how long taxation has existed. Yeah. I guess taxation in... in its formal sense of mm -hmm. government systemic theft has existed since the beginning of the agricultural age. Mm. So we're hunters and gatherers for a really long time. We didn't accumulate many assets. We just sort of uh, ate what we killed, so to speak. You know, very primitive asset and capital accumulation. We did not engage in long-term planning or trade, but once we settled down to grow crops, which was not actually to eat, it was to get drunk. People like to drink. So we like to settle down and grow barley and make beer and wine and all these things. Yeah, That's when we started to accumulate an economic surplus. Hmm. And now when you accumulate an economic surplus, right? stores of grain or fruit or vegetables or livestock, whatever it is, you now have assets that are sedentary. They're in one place and you have to protect them from plundering, right? From other people that would want to come and steal your assets. That protection industry is government. This is where government comes from. Government emerged as an industry to protect the economic surplus produced in the agricultural age. Now to fund that industry, um, they tended to make assessments on the market actors. And those assessments are taxes, right? Pay me this money or else I will hurt you hmm. or I'll just take your stuff. And so there's a long history there. You can go through all of it. You know, it's also the, you know, the earliest known writing were tax records. So it's very uh, part and parcel to our, our development. And um, 
So yeah, th- that was answering your question. How long has it been around? I guess try to answer why it's not necessary. The, the problem we've been trapped in is that you needed to have this physical security provider, but the physical security provider, you don't really have a lot of negotiating leverage with them. So when they say, Hey, you owe me 10 shillings or whatever the denomination is. And you as the baker say, well, you know, I don't think that's a fair price. How about seven? You're negotiating with a guy that's holding all the weapons and all the power. Do you think you have much leverage in that negotiation? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> no. So he'll say, um, fuck you, Mr. Baker. You're going to pay me 10. And for talking back, you're going to pay me 12. And mm. so this is the abusive, oppressive relationship human beings have been in with centralized governments since the dawn of history. What we've never had and what we, what we needed was a form of property that could not be cost effectively plundered by government right? An expensive property right to violate. Now we had some semblance of this with gold because gold is a very economically dense bearer asset. And historically when governments would become oppressive, it was at least feasible to get your gold out of the country, right? You could leave, you could vote with your feet, you could leave an oppressive regime, transport, a relatively small amount of gold that had a lot of value to another jurisdiction and you yeah. could set up a life somewhere else. So this gave, gave individuals some leverage over government. But um, again, as we talked about earlier, the gold standard never really worked because we had to centralize the custody of gold to make it more convenient to use. Once you centralize the custody, you've now reduced the enforcement points necessary for government to control people. So a government can just commandeer the bank and they can control all the people in the area. Yeah. So centralizing the custody of gold made the co-option of people a more cost-effective venture, which is to say it increased the profitability of coercion and violence. And this is, that's what government is. Government is the social apparatus of compulsion, coercion, and violence. So when you look at something like a Bitcoin standard where you don't need ever to centralize the custody. It's very cost effective to self custody Bitcoin, very easy to move it, right? It's just information. You can put it on your head, put it in your head, walk across a border. You can beam it around the world. You have all these different options in terms of how to custody and move it. It gives individuals an even more significant check on government oppression and overreach. Mm. So that's why Bitcoin is disruptive to our very notion of government. And I think it's, it's so hard to get our head around it because again, we're talking about a problem we've been dealing with for five to 7,000 years. Like yeah. this is a very ancient problem. Yeah. Do you think that knowing taxation is, uh, as you said, fraud and theft, and that it's so contrary to what Bitcoin stands for in order for us to move towards this, you know, Bitcoin or freedom maximalist, do you see the U S falling behind because they're now beginning to introduce taxation versus let's say I've just was just in Portugal where they're not really taxing cryptocurrency. Uh, obviously there's other, other, other countries and other, other places as well. Do you think, is that an opportunity now for them to get ahead, knowing that 
in your belief, Bitcoin is the future reserve currency? Absolutely. I would say that um, and the, a very important book that I always recommend on this is The Sovereign Individual. Um, I talk about it a lot, so I won't elaborate Sorry. here, but essentially okay. it predicted the emergence of what they called anonymous digital cyber cash. This book was written in 1997. Hmm. And an implication of the emergence of digital cash was the dissolution of the nation state as the dominant institution in the world. Because the size and domineering stature of the nation state is bound up in its ability to systemically plunder people through fiat currency inflation. So when that option goes away, like I don't need to hold my savings in dollars where you can plunder me. I can hold it in Bitcoin where you can't touch me. Hmm. Over time, as government increases inflation, they're creating this incentive pressure for people to exit fiat currency and go into anything that can't be printed. Yeah. We already see this before Bitcoin, by the way. There's a reason in the US real estate's the best performing asset over the past 50 years because you can't print real estate, right? Mm. So we leave the gold standard, we start printing dollars at an accelerating rate. People are smart enough to know that I can't hold my wealth in dollars. I'm going to hold something that can't be printed. So people move into equities, commodities, real estate. It all these other asset classes become monetized as a result of fiat currency inflation. So in this world where people now have an option to hold a non-state, non-inflatable money like Bitcoin, it's going to remove inflation as a revenue option for government. And now in 2020, the United States collected $4 trillion in direct tax revenues and they printed $4 trillion. So we'd say the revenue mix of the US government in 2020 was 50% taxation, direct taxation, 50% inflation. Hmm. Now, if 50% of that revenue profile is removed as an option, right? Because people have an option to non-inflatable, non-state currency. What does that mean for the U.S. government as a business? U.S. government over time will lose at least 50% of its revenue. So what does that mean? Government will shrink by at least 50%. And so I think there's a giant opportunity for small, smaller, more nimble states to preempt larger states because they just buy by virtue of reality, they move faster, right? There's fewer decision makers. You, you can pass, uh, there's smaller bureaucracies. So you can, you can be more agile as a smaller state than you can a larger state. Those states like El Salvador is doing today that are embracing Bitcoin are effectively preempting the rest of the nation states of the world. And I think there's a great opportunity for them to become, um, business organizations that are much more accountable to the preferences of their citizens and to even attract the best and the brightest and to attract capital into smaller jurisdictions by uh, embracing the new technological paradigm, which is Bitcoin. Yeah. And the flip side of that is larger states are going to suffer. They're going to suffer a lot. They're going to fragment. They're going to collapse. Um, and it's going to accelerate. You know, we already have, I think, the most recent news in the United States is Biden is looking to pass a ten to twenty thousand dollar per student loan relief. You know, and this I think is that was passed I don't know already. how it's already passed. I, I don't know how many that. trillions of dollars that works out to be, but that's just that's money printing, right? You're just canceling people's assets, yeah, or, or buy. You know, I don't know if the government's buying whatever, but 
the more you interfere with a market process and the more you distort incentives, the more you fuck people over, people are going to move into money where they can't be fucked over. Yeah. Right. This is just natural. It's a natural flow. And so in that, in that transition, big states only stand to lose, right? Big states have just enjoyed this privileged monopolistic position, the United States in particular, right? Where we could just print dollars. There's 4 billion dollars, 4 billion users of dollars in the world. There's only 330 million people in the United States. Hmm. So 90 plus percent of dollar users worldwide are not American citizens. That gives us this crazy advantage where we can just print money, export all the inflation and suck in goods and services. Like that that's a privileged position we've enjoyed for at least 50 years. That game is over. Hmm. Right? I'm not saying it's over today, but it's it's going away right now. Did and, you hear this? Um, they just hired 87,000 IRS agents. Of course they did. What would you do if you had 50% of your revenue about to decline? Wouldn't you it's hire insane. some more sales agents? That's and who what are IRS they going agents after? Are. Who are they going they're, after? They're right? going okay. after the wealth of citizens. Yeah, like regular they're citizens. Gonna, and they're going to go after the middle class. Yeah, it's crazy. Because the middle class is always the one that suffers in these tectonic shifts of age. We are moving from the industrial age into the digital age. And the transition will be as significant as the migration from the agricultural age into the industrial age. We don't even have the language to describe the world we're going into. Imagine trying to describe the industrial age to someone living on a farm in the agricultural age. What would you do? They don't even have the analogies to understand what you're talking about. Hmm. That's the same profundity of transition we're going through now. What does that look like in hundred years in your, in your, in your, how do you envision that a world that is potentially dominated by Bitcoin and people have adopted and given enough time to adopt that mindset now? The short answer is nobody knows because, you know, again, there's no precedent for this. Um, a Again, I'd point to the book, The Sovereign Individual. We could draw some parallels to the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was effectively bankrupted by the United States through economic warfare. What happened when the USSR collapsed? It fragmented. It fragmented from one economic aggregate into about 30 nations. Mm -hmm. um, and it also reverted back to, re reverted away from socialism towards capitalism as it's uh, by necessity, right? Because capitalism produces wealth, socialism does not. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now I, you know, these terms get a little bit muddy too, because we're not, we're not capitalists in the US. Anywhere you have a central bank, central bank is an anti-capitalist institution. It's measure number five in Marx's manifesto to the communist party. It's a Marxist institution. If you have a central bank, you're 50% Marxist right out of the gate. So the United States was less Marxist than the USSR. That's why they economically outcompeted the USSR. That's why the USSR collapsed into 30 some odd nations. And that's why they reverted back to um, watered down capitalism, let's say, by necessity. I think something like that happens going into the future. We have about 200 nation states today. I think we have 20,000 nation states um, sometime in the next couple of hundred years. Could happen faster, could happen slower. I don't know. The timing mm -hmm. is always impossible to say. 
but ultimately Bitcoin represents this humanitarian movement where individual power, optionality, discretion, freedom are maximized and people are left alone, right? The, the, the profitability of coercion and violence declines significantly because Bitcoin is really hard to steal. It's impossible to inflate, really hard to trace, really hard to track. Um, if custodied properly, there's still, there's a ways to go on a lot of these technological fronts, specifically with privacy on Bitcoin, but I'm confident layer two and layer three technologies like lightning network and beyond will solve for privacy. And I think it's a world where when you decrease the amount of net theft occurring and human beings are left alone to self-organize, people are much happier. People are much more cooperative. People are much wealthier, right? It's much easier to create wealth, start a business, satisfy human wants, ship goods and services. When you don't have the government in your back pocket, you don't have to cut through red tape to start a business when you don't have to ask permission, right? When we have a world premised more on freedom and less on permission, people get more shit done. So I think it's a world where people are much happier, healthier, and wealthier. That's the long game. That's the, yeah. that's the sunset we're riding into. Maybe the middle game is much more complicated because we have the dominant institution in the world, the central bank funded nation state collapsing. And if you look at the collapse of dominant institutions historically, it's not pretty, right? When the medieval church collapsed in the wake of the inventing of the printing press, wasn't pretty. They were hurting people. They were killing people. They were doing all kinds of really draconian, dark things. Mm. So I don't know how bad things will get before they get better, but I'm confident they will get a lot better. This is more of a, a personal question, but how do you balance knowing where the U.S. is heading, your thoughts and your values behind Bitcoin and what it what it really represents and that knowing that there's better potential in different nations, how do you balance that belief but continue to live in the U.S. currently? I'm actually curious for myself because I'm still debating knowing where the U.S. is heading and all that stuff. I'm sorry. The question is, how do I balance... Like, how do you think about continuing to live in the U.S.? Have you looked at other mm -hmm. options, knowing all of these things that are probably going to get worse in, in the government's intervening uh, with yes. what Bitcoin's trying to do? Yeah, back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, Bitcoin is not enough for human freedom. It's, it's incredible. It's a, the most significant tool you can think of, particularly because it gives you so many options, right? Like I mm -hmm. said... You're insulated from the opinions and actions of others. You can move billions of dollars across a border by putting private keys in your brain. You know, it gives you a lot of optionality and optionality is freedom, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a great means to the end of freedom, but it is not comprehensive. There are other things you need, right? You need guns, you need energy, you need food, you need passports, you need passport optionality. And so how do I think about it? I think about... You know, as I disclosed to you early, I think before we started recording, I just have relocated to the American South. I grew up in Tennessee. I've just relocated to Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I think places in the world that have a strong religious culture at least have a resistance 
to government oppression, mm. right? People put G-O-D above G-O-V. Those non-compliant cultures, I think, are extremely valuable to be in right now because any, you know, when I go to New York or I go to LA or I go to San Francisco, I see a bunch of crazy fucking people that think that the government is God <laughs> and they're just getting destroyed inside yeah. and out. Yeah, so I want to be as far away from that as possible. Um, I also want to continue accumulating passport optionality, citizenship optionality. Mm, uh, this involves, you know, making direct investments in other jurisdictions, visiting them, seeing, having options, right? Again, yeah, yeah. when you go into conditions of uncertainty, the optimal strategy is optionality, right? The, because no matter which way that uncertainty cuts, you have more choices at your disposal to respond, right? You're more responsible with more options when uncertainty is rising. So that's what I'm trying to do. Um, stack sats, stack gats, stack water, stack food, stack passports. Yeah, that seems the right the way, way to go. And I hear a lot of people talking about freedom and, and decentralization and all that stuff where everything is, you know, now the currency is all becoming more decentralized, but they're kind of stuck in this one place, whether it's Canada or the US or whatnot. They don't mm -hmm. think about going somewhere else. Uh, it seems like that's kind of the last frontier for personal freedom is that you can live anywhere else. You can decide to pack up your bags and not live just across the country, but literally anywhere in the world that you can decide to go to that can support the uh, identity and the values that you have. That's interesting. Um, yeah, Bitcoin question. makes that yeah. very easy too. Because Bitcoin yeah. is hypermobile. So if, should you right. decide to move, you don't need to go and deal with your local bank who may or may not release your funds. Mm. You just move. That's it. Yeah. Um, final questions around investing. How do you think about investing in terms of cryptocurrency? And how should most, like the average Joe, how should they think about investing? This isn't financial advice, obviously, but this is just for you personally. Well, I will give some financial advice, and that is to study. That is to do research, establish a worldview. Um, and then from that worldview, you derive your portfolio construction. So what assets do you have conviction in? What direction do you think the world is going? That's how you should place your chips, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, and it's fine. I mean, it's necessary to listen to other people. We can't all be experts in every subject. But just diversify, right? No one knows everything. I sure as the fuck don't know everything. Listen to multiple viewpoints, assimilate yeah. them, incorporate that into your own worldview and let that influence your portfolio construction. Um, I do think that, you know, with inv another thing that's really important to consider is just the nature of counterparty risk. People think they own things, right? They think you think you own the stocks in your portfolio. You think you own the dollars in your bank account, but you don't. There's counterparties between you and all of that. Dollars can be turned off. Dollars can be seized. Dollars can be confiscated, inflated, deauthorized. You know, in India, it was about 10 or 12 years ago, there was a 500 rupee banknote that overnight was just deactivated, right? The government just said, hey, that piece of paper that you thought was worth 500 rupees. Well, it's not, it's all, we turned wow. it off. So that can happen to your money. I don't, you know, people, some people like to save cash under their mattress or whatever. And they think that's going to be safe. It's not going to work, man. Government can turn it off. So the only thing you can truly own 
is a bearer asset, right? That's an asset that you physically hold, that there's no, no counterparty between you and that asset. Yeah. So, you know, gold, guns, food, anything you can hold and defend, um, that's property. Uh, and you know, to that end, Bitcoin is the most, uh, cost-effective form of property to defend in terms of quote unquote cryptocurrency investing. My advice would be that crypto is a scam. All crypto is a scam. I'm generalizing. I might not be exactly perfectly right, but I'm damn near right. 99.99% of all crypto is a scam. So I wouldn't mm. even waste your time. Anyone that's talking about cryptocurrency, throw it out. Anyone that's talking about crypto projects or crypto assets or smart contracts, it's all, it's a bunch of uh, solutions looking for a problem. There's no market fit. There's no, nothing market proven. It's all a bunch of bullshit. Bitcoin's the only thing that matters in the whole stack, huh. as far as I can tell. So you're the, just holding Bitcoin basically from a cryptocurrency. Portfolio. I, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. 100% wow. Bitcoin, 0% shitcoin. The analogy I like to use here is, you know, it's good practice to act as if every gun is loaded, right? If you're cleaning a gun, you always point it away from yourself. You never point it at anyone. You always act as if the gun is loaded. Now, this doesn't matter. This is independent of whether or not the gun is actually loaded, right? This is a pretend practice that we put into play as a, as a matter of safety. Hmm. And you do that so you don't hurt yourself or you don't hurt someone else. It doesn't literally mean every gun is loaded, but it's a really good, healthy practice. In a similar vein, I think it's useful to treat every crypto project as if it's a scam. Just point them away from you. Just, just avoid them because they could hurt you or they could hurt others. Um, and am I throwing some baby out with the bathwater? Maybe, but Bitcoin's enough. You know, Bitcoin's been appreciating at 200% annualized rate for 10 years. Yeah. How much more do you need? Do you really need the extra 6% yield or whatever, you know, flashy bells and whistles on whatever crypto nonsense? Like you don't know the risk you're taking in engaging with these other projects. Again, counterparty risk, uh, you know, just study this, the recent history, the collapse of Luna, the collapse of Celsius, custodians, like the magic of Bitcoin is that you can hold wealth without counterparty risk, without needing to trust anyone, without dealing with anyone else's promises. So just do that. Hmm. Just do that and insulate yourself from all the bullshit in the world because the bullshit in the world is getting worse. There's a great piece written in 2014 by, I think Goldstein, titled, Everyone's a Scammer. Everyone's just after your Bitcoin, whether they know it or not yet. Everyone, everyone will want Bitcoin because it's the only asset in the world that's actually untouchable in a world where government is aggressively overreaching. What more do you need than that? Yeah. How do you balance that knowing that people hold cash, people hold stocks, bonds, all these different things, and knowing that it's, 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 you know, I guess not really secure. Like how do you balance the diversification around around that? Or how do you think about that? Well, I just hold Bitcoin. You just hold Bitcoin, no stocks. Like, I mean, obviously no, I've, I've divested every asset that I have other than Bitcoin. Damn, I hold some dollars in. for my business. I run yeah. a profitable business, right? But I, I convert all of my 
long-term savings into Bitcoin and that's it. And I've outperformed every, I, you know, every investment strategy that I know of, and I've talked to hundreds of funds over the past five years, I've outperformed all of them. With yeah. just buy and hold. And is that, is that part of the reason why you got out of the hedge fund? Is that like, you just realized that Bitcoin is what most people just need to hold and it wasn't, you don't need to do half like a hedge well, fund. Well, part of the reason was I was spending all my blood, sweat, and tears trying to outperform Bitcoin, actually. That was our benchmark. Mm, interesting. And yeah. so kind of had this epiphany that what the fuck am I doing trying? Like, it's a very stressful business, right? It's 24 yeah. by 7. You're trying to outperform the best performing asset in human history. Not easy to do. And you're spending all your energy trying to do it. The alternative is you could just stop doing all that and just hold the thing. And you, you know, probably, you know, again, it's really hard to outperform. So if you just buy and hold, you're probably going to outperform 95 plus percent of all hedge funds. Right, right. And then you liberate all your time and energy to do whatever you want. And for me, it was the market shouting at me, you know, more education, more reading, more writing, more talking. So I was like, well, I could just hold Bitcoin and then go do this education thing that I'm. I'm really feeling a resonance with. Yeah. And that's what I've been doing. Yeah. And it's it a hard choice. I've sell, got a lot I of guess. peace of mind. You know, I've, I've traded a lot of assets. I've owned a lot of assets. I've done a lot of different things and, um, you cannot really put a price tag on peace of mind to just have yeah. this spaciousness of thought and freedom to engage with, with life as you see fit rather than trying to scheme how to like trade the option at the right time to generate the alpha, you know, it's just, um, very consuming and I'm, I'm grateful to be free of it. Yeah. Amen, man. Well, that was great, Robert. Um, where can people learn more about you? I'm going to link the stuff you mentioned throughout the conversation. So, uh, that will be in there, but where can people learn more about you? I know you got a book out as well. Um, so we can plug all those in for people can, learn more. Yeah. So, uh, you can find me on Twitter at breedlove 22. That's my last name, B R E E D L O V E two, two. Uh, there's a link to my link tree there, which has a link to a book that I co-authored titled, thank God for Bitcoin. Um, we also just released an ebook of the sailor series, which was the first, uh, long form series I did on the what is money show. And on that link tree, there are links to all my other work as well. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, you know, very, again, grateful to be doing what I do and I love engaging with people. I love adding value in the lives of others. I was just walking the neighborhood yesterday, which is so weird. And this guy's cutting his grass, you know, 67 year old guy. And he stops his lawnmower and looks at me. He's like, breed love. I'm like, yeah, what's up, man? And he starts going on about how, you know, an episode I did with Tom Bilyeu really like changed his views on money and how transformative it had been for him. And wow, he'd been buying Bitcoin ever since and done really well. And so I just like, I can't think of a better, more fulfilling life, honestly, than what I've found. So I just find myself constantly uh repeating how grateful i am for it so. yeah yeah amen man well we were appreciative of all the knowledge you share and we're rooting for you so um Thank thanks you, so much for coming on once again and uh, i encourage everyone to check out your stuff we'll link all that stuff on the episode so all right thanks so much robert appreciate it thank you sean 
cool. All right, how do I stop this recording now?